Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hello, the Other People Podcast is a listener-supported program. All episodes of this show, every single episode is available for free. You can listen to all of it for free. I make it available freely. I offer it freely. Your support makes a difference. If you want to support this show, you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Okay. Thank you. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person at just Hi, one time. Hey, hey, how's it going? <laughs> right. This is the Other People Podcast. I am Brad Listy. It's nice to be with you. I'm in Los Angeles. We're on fire. There's smoke billowing from the hills. Malibu has been evacuated. Uh, Kanye and Kim had to leave their house. It's uh, It's really been kind of a disaster out here. And then we had the shooting in Thousand Oaks, another mass shooting. And one of the victims like narrowly escaped the Vegas shooting last year. I think things are pretty fucked up. I'm just going to go out on a limb. We had the election this week. On a positive note, the Democrats now have control of the House. We have one branch of government. There's going to be a check on power, which we so desperately need. That's not nothing. I think we should celebrate that. I don't think we should be overly positive. I think there's still a lot of danger. I think this lame duck congressional session that we're in right now is going to be very eventful and consequential, and a lot could happen, Not and much of that uh, might be very bad. So stay awake, stay loud, stay engaged would be my advice. I, You know, it's like uh, trying to manage the emotions associated with like, oh God, climate change, cities on fire, smoke in the air, air quality, terrible, you know, developing a cold from breathing particulate matter, Oh, a shooting not far from home, multiple people dead, crazy, deranged, mentally damaged human being takes gun into bar. It's a bar that my wife used to go to back when she was in college. You know, we know, you know, we, one of the victims, like, you know, one of the aunts or uncles is somebody that she, you know, it's like, it's not that far away and it just gets to be exhausting. So... 
I don't know, just trying to parse the week. A lot happens uh, every day in the world. But I think when it comes to, uh, you know, the United States of America, it feels like every single week is just this roller coaster of insanity and drama. And it can be a lot to process. I do like the idea of Adam Schiff being the chair of the House Intelligence Committee. I do like the idea of uh, Maxine Waters. What is it, financial services? Elijah Cummings at Oversight. Hey, Trump, fuck you. (laughs) That's not such a bad deal. We're going to need that. Be interesting to see how it all plays out. But, man, I could sure use some sanity. Hey, Trump. Speaking of which, (laughs) my guest is Lydia Kiesling. She is the editor of The Millions, which is a popular literary website, and she has just uh, published her debut novel. It is called The Golden State, and it is available from MCD Books, which is an imprint of Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. You may know Lydia from uh, The Millions and other places online where she has published uh, literary criticism, which has been widely praised. That's how I first became aware of her. And her debut novel, The Golden State, is earning rave reviews all over the place. So I'm very happy for her, and I'm very happy to have her here on the program and to share this conversation with you now. So here she is. This is Lydia Kiesling, and her debut novel, One More Time, is called The Golden State. You know, you don't really realize what you're doing until after you've done it. Um, So I... I have some kind of, I suspect the like reason that I ended up writing the book is something that I didn't really know at the time. Um, and the sort of big thing that happened is that I had, um, my older daughters, I have two small daughters. One is about to turn four and one just turned one. Um, so when the four year, almost four year old was born, I was working full time at UC Berkeley um, and had, in many respects, a wonderful job. Uh, but I was, like many uh, women and men, um, parents, uh, I was a little bit demoralized when I realized what kind of uh, parental leave I was looking at. Or, actually, that's not true. I felt I didn't. I didn't know at first how kind of little it was. And I'll say, in the scheme of things, that I actually had quite a bit of leave. It was. Uh, six weeks at 50% of your salary, which is a lot more than many people in America get, which is truly unfortunate. But, um, and but I, it's still not enough. It's not. No, it's, it's ghastly. Um, and I, so I, and I paid, uh, I paid $28 out of my paycheck, uh, to get 70% of, I sort of knew that I was planning to have a kid. And so you could sign up to do this like supplemental insurance that would give you a little bit more. I mean, the truly shitty thing is that, uh, California as a state has a better policy than that. And some of that legislation was written at UC Berkeley, but UC Berkeley for whatever reason doesn't buy into that system. Um, so that was just another level. But so, you know, I was preparing to have this baby and I was like, well, it's not a lot, but I'm, I'll take 12 weeks. I was lucky that I could because my husband works for the city and county of San Francisco. So he has 12 paid weeks. Um, and so we, you know, said I, I would take 12 weeks. So some of those would be paid partially and some of them would be unpaid and he would take his time. Um, and in the scheme of things, again, that is really wonderful compared to what most people get. Um, and I 
was kind of like I, I had been demoralized when I was trying to set this up because no one I talked to at UC Berkeley seemed to even be clear on what the policy was. And I was given all kinds of like wrong information. Um, the wrong paperwork had been filed at some point I found out. And so my claim was like denied for the benefit that I was entitled to just all kind of things like that happened. So that w- I, I was, had this like kind of festering anger about that. Uh, and then a great many, they- I should just say <laughs> a great many, uh, classic novels have been born of festering <laughs> anger. Yes, it's really, well, and initially, um, I mean, I'll get to this, but so I, I know I wanted to write a novel about bureaucracy because just navigating, um, UC Berkeley and the, uh, UC system generally is just like layers and layers of bureaucracy that don't talk to one another very well. Um, so it just was completely dysfunctional. So that was like festering rage thing, number one. And then uh, when my daughter was born, she was born late. So I, uh, you know, kind of lost two weeks of my time right off the bat. Um, And I had always thought, you know, I'm going to be so excited to go back to work. Like, there's no question that I would ever leave my job and stay home with a baby. You know, my career, such as it is, is important to me. And I, you know, I'm I'm not a person who's going to care that I have to go back to work. I really do think that I was that, like, cavalier about it. Uh, and then when the baby was born, I found myself just, like, counting. Uh, every day I would do this extremely anxious, like, agitated math about how many full days I had left um, before I had to go back to work. And then I, you know, tried to scoot back uh, the leave a little bit. I think I took, like, four extra days. Um, and the kind of anxiety of just knowing that I was – uh, going to be away from her really affected me much more than I had anticipated, um, as with many things when you have a baby. Um, and so I had this kind of fantasy at that time. And then once I did go back to work, which, you know, I was happy in some ways to be working, but doing things like, uh, trying to maintain like breastfeeding is just God awful. Um, when you are working outside of the home, um, or away from the baby, it, things like that, you know, started to really kind of weigh on me. Um, and I had this kind of fantasy, like that everyone was wrong about newborns being hard. Like there's nothing intrinsically hard about the newborn. I I know that's not true, but this is how I was thinking. And that the real issue was that our society is so like God awful, um, that there are all these external factors that make being with a newborn. That's, that's what is shitty about it. Um, and so I had this kind of fantasy about like, if I could just break away and I was just with a baby and, you know, nothing else would matter. But then as I, you know, as the baby got older and as I saw, you know, how I kind of am as a parent, I also, another part of my brain realized that I would do very poorly in that, um, setup, um, because it is really hard to be with a child all of the time, um, especially as they get older. So I think in a way, and that's when I started writing also. And so I think the book was kind of a way of like exploring that fantasy a little bit because it is about a woman who just goes off uh, to her own space with her her toddler. Uh, And then, you know, she's kind of miserable and she's miserable for other reasons. uh, But, you know, part of it is because she's getting what she wants in a way. Okay. That's a very, that's a really long answer. <laughs> no, but it's good. And, and, you know, I, uh, I think that like, were you aware and is it accurate to say that like the, the <clears throat> kind of the granular concerns 
the minutiae of parenthood and motherhood in particular isn't often addressed in great depth in our literature. Is that? Uh, yeah. So were you, were you aware of that when you were sitting down to write? Were you like, this is something I want to address? Yes. Um, so initially, I mean, uh, the first kind of thing that I, the first sort of vignettes that I wrote from the book um, were when my daughter was about six months old. So I was back at work and they were, they were more about work. And so they were, you know, as I mentioned, I sort of had this like vision of being able to write the great, like, uh, kind of like domestic bureaucracy novel, uh, because I had read a lot of workplace books. I wrote a, an essay for the New Yorker page turner about workplace books by women, because usually in the surveys of like the great office novel, uh, it's always this list of books by men and most of the men are dead. And, you know, many of them are wonderful books, but, uh, so I was just kind of curious about what, you know, why women were not, whether, you know, whether they were writing these books and weren't being included or they weren't writing the books at all. Um, and both of both things I think are true in some ways. So I, I read a lot of these books that, that talked about the workplace and I was thinking like, you know, what if, what if like someone wrote the pale King, except they like cared about people and women. Well, um, okay. So <laughs> I want to stop you. Cause I almost, you want to know what I almost said earlier when you were talking about wanting to write about bureaucracy, uh-huh. I almost what? made a pale King joke, but then I was like, you know what, if I, if I make a pale King joke, do I have to bring David Foster Wallace into this conversation? <laughs> like, is, I, it was on my no, brain. I, have, I have to I cop have to, to that. that one. Um, I mean, that is the, that, I mean, I think that level of ambition is what is required to write a bureaucracy novel. But, you know, then I found when I was doing this kind of survey that there are these really great ones, um, that are by women and they're not like a million pages long. Um, and, one of them is called The Beautiful Bureaucrat uh, by Helen Phillips. Oh, right. That's a great book. Um, I mean, you know, it's very different. It's not, it's not like realist in quite the same ways. Uh, but it kind of incorporates issues of like home and hearth in a really interesting way. So I had these like grand ideas that I was going to be able to do that. But then as I started writing, I mean, it was just instantly clear that I didn't, I had no like vision for that. And because writing a novel was so new to me to begin with, um, you know, I already felt like I was flailing and then I was just, so I, I wrote kind of things that took place in an office, but what I saw from those pieces of writing was that it wasn't really like the office part that was interesting. It was like the voice and the, the concerns about like this baby at home. Um, and, and I was aware, like, because I, I remember reading uh, before, I think it was right. It was either right before or right after I gave birth to uh, the my first baby. I read After Birth by Alyssa Albert, uh, which is a narrated by a woman who has a. I think he's a one year old baby, um, and it's you know as the as it says in the title, um, <laughs> it's a lot about you know that period of after having a baby and. And I just remember being so, I mean, it's very kind of voice driven. It has this very like, um, almost like abrasive, but in the best way, um, written in that register. And, and I remember thinking like, I just haven't read something that's like this. Uh, and then when I read The Last Samurai by Helen DeWitt, which I read, um, when my older daughter was still very small, I was struck by the presence of Ludo, um, her son, the narrator's son, uh, in the book. And yeah, it made me think of how, how few books I had read where there's just like a 
a baby or a child just kind of always there doing stuff. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Well, I want to talk too, because you keep talking about like the rigors of early, uh, like the early days of parenthood and, and in particular motherhood. And I suppose if you have proximity to like, if you know, you're one of these kids who is like 12 years older than their youngest sibling and you were really conscious when your mom was nursing and raising that infant or whatever, you might have a little bit more insight, but I gotta, I gotta confess, like when we had our first child, I was like, oh my God, like the mom really takes the brunt of it because of the breastfeeding <laughs> and having to be up every three hours. And, you know, like mm -hmm. it's just inherently like biologically in a multitude of ways, more demanding on the mother, but it's grueling. And then you, mm -hmm. and then you factor in like that day job and trying to like pump and like all that kind of stuff. And I don't know, just just like something that like, I suppose I should have read a couple of books or something and been more prepared, but I, it, I found myself adjusting on the fly and being, uh, I don't know, uh, startled and impacted by just how difficult it is. Well, and I think, I mean, if you are, if you are a lucky person, a, like a privileged person, you, you, you might have a sense in, uh, in some ways of how our society is dysfunctional. Uh, but I think, you know, there are a few, there are a few experiences like, uh, having a baby, um, to show how just like the basic structure of what people are expected to do, which is, you know, work, um, but also somehow like raise families, how like completely hostile, uh, the way like American society is kind of set up to that premise. And that's not, and, and it's at every level. I mean, the, the kind of specifics about how it is hostile and shitty are differ according to your class and race, um, and gender, but at every sort of across the board, it is terrible in some way. Um, and basically the only, you know, there's an expect the, the only way to kind of mitigate how it is structured to be bad is to have money. Um, and even that, you know, is only money can only do so much, but, um, uh, it does a lot though. Uh, <laughs> so, well, no, yeah, but I mean, you're, you're right. Like having childcare, like, cause mm -hmm. you talk about like the difficulties of just being with a child who's especially like a two year old when they can sort of like in three, they can sort of talk back and you know, mm -hmm. like, it gets more challenging when they're an infant and they're kind of inert, you know, you sort of know, Oh, they're crying, feed them. Oh, they need a nap, you know, and yeah. you, you can, uh, they sleep a lot. So you have a little bit more downtime, but then the more active they get, the more difficult it gets. And that can, 
grind you down because you're having like negotiations over Legos all day long. And that's not like a natural mode for somebody who, especially somebody who's like into books and <laughs> adult conversation, you know, like, so, uh, I think like just having access to somebody who can like watch your kid for a couple hours, you know, to like have a time out is an enormous privilege. And without that, it's gotta be, uh, that much more challenging, like with no ventilation. Well, yeah. And I mean, the way that most people, it's just funny, not in a haha way to see how kind of screwed you are from every angle, because most, most people aren't able to, um, not have both parents working. Um, and then, but in order to work, you need childcare. So there's just this like, in like, bizarre bind that a lot of people find themselves in. And so it, it's actually kind of like a luxury thing. I mean, there's some people who stay home with their kids because they basically can't afford to work. Like they can't make enough money to pay for the childcare that would allow them to work. Um, and for some people that's great because they wanted to be home with their kid anyway. But then most people are, you know, one income just does not do the same work that it did for a brief period of time, um, in our history. And so, yeah, then you're kind of like, you, you might not get any babysitting time to like go and do something else for a few hours. I don't know. I have, there's like there, I could talk for like five hours about how, um, the various ways that people struggle with this, but yes, that, that was on my mind a lot as I um, was writing or thinking about starting to write the book. Yeah. Like we like, my wife was working and we were like calculating it and it was like, wow, you're doing all this work and it's basically just all going to childcare except for like a few hundred dollars. It's so, mm -hmm. so depressing to think about, you know, like it's like the entire paycheck was basically just going to childcare. It was really like the net for us was not much. Um, so you're always trying to weigh those things. And then now with my son, um, needing all this care, like she's got to basically be on him all the yeah. time. So now it's like we have one person and that's me who's, uh, trying to bring it all in. It's, uh, it's challenging. It's uh, really, it's, that's, that is a lot. Yeah. And it's, and, and we have it in, we have it comparatively good. You always, I always have to like flag it, you know? And it's like, it's a, uh, it's a little depressing to think about. Like if, if it's this challenging for us, like what must it be like for people who don't have resources? Uh, something's got to be done. So I want to talk about uh, bureaucracy. Like you keep, mm -hmm. you keep mentioning this and <laughs> I'm actually fascinated by it. Uh, because like really when we talk about bureaucracy, or at least when I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about human relationships and systems and how we organize ourselves and communicate with one another. And I'm sure you've given it a lot of thought, like more than most because of this book and because of, uh, experiences you had, you know, as a mother, uh, you know, dealing with work stuff and time off and all that kind of stuff. But why is it so hard for human beings to create functional systems of organization? Um, I would love to know. I am, I, I am like sort of endlessly fascinated by this because uh, to bring it back to UC Berkeley again, it's, <laughs> it seems like I have like the world's biggest grudge against UC Berkeley. And uh, it, in some ways that's true, but it's also, you know, obviously like a wonderful place where wonderful things happen, which is why I think it's such a shame that they have gone through so much recently. But um, so there's a really great book called by David Graeber called the utopia of rules. Um, and I read this book when I was in my kind of like thinking about bureaucracy books, period. Uh, and it, 
I mean, there's this kind of the the shorthand that uh, we have, especially in America, especially like on the right, is that bureaucracies are invented. They, they are a natural outgrowth of government. And so more government you have, like the more bureaucracy you have. And and they're like kind of in the in the popular imagination, just like inextricably tied to one another. Um, but this Utopia of Rules book, and I, it's been a while since I've read it, and I'm sure I'm not going to remember it exactly right. But basically, it, it it's points out that bureaucracy is sort of is actually an outgrowth of like a, a corporatist like kind of a business model and that just kind of basic there was like an unholy alliance formed at one point be- between business and government especially in America uh and that that's that bureaucracy it's unfair to sort of just say that it's like something that is inherent in like government um and uh, and at Berkeley, they had right before I started working there, they had paid Bain Consulting Group, which is uh, notably not a government enterprise. It is a. <laughs> is that like Bain? Is that like Bain Capital? Uh, yeah, I think so. It's like you know one of the like McKinsey style. Um, but but, but is it? Group. But that's like the Mitt Romney because remember he yes. was yes okay. yes that it's the that one. Um, so they paid them six million dollars to come in and you know give them some kind of like organizational upgrade. And from my understanding, which you know of course is like very uh, not you know hundredth hand how this went down, uh, they came in. They advised the university that they needed to go to something called a shared services model, uh, which I, I, I basically like centralizes all of your processes, like HR and things like that. Um, and then you would remove extraneous people because the way things often happen in universities is each department is like its own little fiefdom and it's got someone who does the HR and someone who um, does purchasing and all of that type of stuff. So there's like kind of like a duplication of effort, I guess. Uh, and so the shared services was going to like consolidate that. A bunch of people got laid off. Uh, all the kind of administrative staff got like moved to an offsite location away from campus Um it cost $6 million. People were absolutely outraged. It kind of wasn't working that well, but, but in order to like, I was, I heard that then Berkeley was like, well, this isn't really working. Like we need more help with this, but they didn't have more. Basically you like pay more to like make it actually work. Like they'll give you the plan and tell you what you need to do for X amount of money. But then if you really want the plan to like succeed, you have to like keep paying money, um, which, you know, the state of California and the UC system does not necessarily have. So, when I was working there, everything like shared services was this just like bugbear that everyone who worked there talked about as being so dysfunctional. And it was like truly dysfunctional to the point that the chancellor, um, who has since had to resign because of his own um, dealings, uh, he said in front of the academic senate that shared services had failed, like it had just failed as a model. Um, so you know, this all happened within like the three years that I worked there. And it, it just made such an impression on me because I think every place I've worked, you can always see, you see how people like want to make systems that work and that streamline things. Uh, and then to the point where there are these like giant companies whose whole thing is like, we're going to come in and help you like do your systems, but it's still like, they still don't work. Yeah. Um, It's so hard. It's, it's so hard. Because like the, can... the point I want to make is that like sometimes or maybe even oftentimes it's like with best intentions, you know, mm-hmm. like sometimes it's like nefarious and people are trying to just like slash and burn and 
money is the God and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of times it's like, okay, we want to be functional. We want to do the right thing. So we're going to try this. And then it's just a mess. Well, and, and I found for myself, I mean, what it, it's amazing how like quickly you, you become your own bureaucrat. So, um, I had a, a job at my job at UC Berkeley was in a, in a research center. Um, and it was like a basically it was administration, um, in addition to a lot of other things, but I could find myself, like I would say, okay, well we need a, whatever we're doing here doesn't work. So like we need to make a system and I would like start making the system. And then you could see suddenly like all these, you come up, up against things you hadn't really planned on. And then like your system becomes slightly more complicated. And then you realize you have like five different kind of paths that one task can take depending on certain contingencies. And then suddenly you're like, you realize you are the person and you've, like inflicted like six different forms and spreadsheets uh, on your kind of work community that hadn't been there before. So like that's just a, a thing that happens. And I'm I'm yeah. And like it's not people usually aren't trying to be like assholes when uh, these things happen. But I mean, and then so when I was writing the book, I was thinking about this. You know, there there's like a little bit of the university bureaucracy, but the more meaningful bureaucracy, which is mostly like off it shapes the book while being off screen is like our immigration system, which is also just layers on layers on layers of, um, of bureaucracies. But in that case, like there is, there is kind of like a malevolent, um, bent to a lot of our immigration policy and it, and it, to the point where it comes down often to sort of like individual actors within it can affect it. But just generally speaking, I think when you look at the way the process is laid out, America wants to make it hard uh, for people to come here and for people to become American. And as obviously, like, it's only getting harder. Well, and I think, too, like, like complexity lends itself to corruption. Like, if, yes. the, if the process is as layered as our immigration process is or as most corporate bureaucracies are, and I think it's a really important point that you made about how it's not just government. It's just it's any human organization. You put enough mm -hmm. people together and you have some sort of shared aim or something, there's going to be bureaucracy as you try to like parcel or parse out uh, responsibility and create like information flow and communication systems that are effective. Like it just, it's a natural outgrowth of just human beings getting together. Uh, yeah. But I think when there's a million layers to it and it's complicated and hard to sort of uh, wrap your head around that opens the door for people to like go in and mess with a layer, you know, and, and yes. to find ways to corrupt it and make it harder. Or in the case of like immigration, um, you know, there's abuse, there's, there's grift, all of it. It's just human, yeah, be it, human it, beings can, are messy. You can, <laughs> you can make it like a pay to play thing. Cause it's like, this is so complicated that I'm the only one who can help you yes. for a small fee. <laughs> It, like that's that brings up a good question because it's like I guess if you can master bureaucracy, which is what I think effective politicians like for good and for ill, that's part of what makes them effective. You know, is that they have a full grasp. Like I remember reading this book about Dick Cheney uh, called Angler. Are you familiar with that book it's by, <laughs> by Barton Gelman? He's like a Washington, uh -huh. Washington Post reporter. I actually I really recommend it as an audio book because that's how I read it. And it's got like this really creepy, like interstitial, like, you know, music in between chapters. <laughs> it's like it's like a, it's like a Stephen King novel, you know, but uh, one of the things that it highlights is just because, you know, Cheney was, I want to say, Gerald Ford's chief of staff when he was like 28. 
so oh, wow. he had like an unusual career at the highest levels, like an unusual length of time operate like secretary of defense, Congress, uh, you know, chief of staff, uh, so on and so forth. So he came into the vice presidency with, um, an elevated understanding of how the government bureaucracy worked, like it's nooks and crannies. And that was one of the reasons right. why he was able to, um, manipulate it, you know, to his favor and to sort of, uh, run the first term, especially of the Bush presidency. So, Oh, Any, yeah, it's like, but I, I guess like <laughs> another question that comes to mind is like, uh, like in, when you read the Utopia of Rules or in your research for this book, did you like, did you come across any like functional bureaucracies? Are there companies or you know government organizations that are healthy and that function well? Like, well, well, you know, I can't believe I'm going to say this because I have had like everyone, you know, very maddening experiences with, uh, this place. But I mean, the U S post office is amazing. Um, if you think about it and yes, like it is much maligned. We've all had like a thing get lost when you do need to kind of fix something special. Uh, there are problems, but it's honestly considering how like low tech some things about it still are. I think it's a, a little bit miraculous. And like, honestly, you know, there are places in America that get mail that if UPS was supposed to, you know, they would have to pay a hundred dollars basically to get just like a bill in the mail because nobody would be, especially, you know, thinking about like, um, the place where my book is set, very rural Northeastern California, like there's not even, there's, there's like little cell service, um, kind of basic things that people take for granted in other areas are like not a given everywhere. Um, but the post office goes to all of those places. Um, so I think it's a shame when we think about like privatizing, um, the U S postal service, because it actually does a lot with, um, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm with sure you. I'm with someone, you. I'm sure there are people out there who will be like, well, it costs like this many, like billions of dollars. But like, I mean, I've had interactions with UPS or FedEx that are, incredibly maddening um and and no more no less like easy uh than dealing with the post office so i'm just like really not convinced that like if you just you know if someone who's like trying to make money out of it like it will automatically be better another thing that is pretty amazing to me which i think i mean it, it sort of feels related to the post office because you can often do it at a post office but getting a passport uh is if you are you need to get a passport on a you know they just have a lot of contingencies laid out like there's the way you get a passport if you have plenty of time there's the way you get it if you have a little bit less time there's like the emergency way that you get it and i've done all of those ways uh and they all you kind of are like this is real i'm just i'm going to like put this envelope in the mail and like get a passport back but like it works yeah so you know, I, 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 again, I'm sure there are people out there who it's like, well, I post up, you know, my passport didn't come through and my life was ruined. And, uh, that is unfortunate, but I have, uh, had great experiences with like the U S passport office. So I think there are lots of things that, um, are, you know, they get, they get the short end of the stick, um, in our national, uh, discourse, but they're, they're still doing what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. And I think too, like, I think it's some, the, the, the best case scenario might be messy, but functional. Mm -hmm. It's never going to be, it's like, there's no utopia. Uh, you know, yeah. it's not going to be like a perfect, but if it's a functional working system, 
that hits the mark, you know, 95% of the time, that's a pretty good rate. And you talk about the post office and like, I'm a, I, I find it miraculous that you can put an envelope inside of one of those blue boxes and send it to some far corner of the country, middle of nowhere. And three or four days later, it's going to be there in their mailbox. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's uh we need to get back to that i like i like uh i'm a big huge advocate for writing letters and like sending them in the mail it's yeah i i <laughs> i would like to do it more yeah well, it's you funny i'm like i like i love the post office but like when was the last time i sent a christmas card <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you've been busy raising children it's true uh so i want to talk to you about childhood your childhood um mm -hmm. and in particular your childhood as it pertains to like your creative life and your origin story as like a book person and a writer and like who, like, is there like a, like a rosebud moment or a, <laughs> like an early influence that like your book that you read that just like cracked it open for you that you can recall? Um, well I had, so I'm an, I'm an only child and I, um, my dad was in the foreign service, so we moved around a lot. So I, I moved, you know, every two to five years. Um, and so I did a lot of reading. My parents also are very big. Uh, they both have like an archeology span background. That's how they met. So, uh, they, we did a lot of like driving around for hours at a time, um, to go see like remote things. Uh, and I always found that like incredibly boring and I, learn to read. And then I would just sit in the backseat of the car and read. Um, and I was lucky I didn't get car sick. I so, was going to say, I'd be like, yeah. <laughs> I would be so nauseous if I was doing that. <laughs> I don't know whether I just like, I formed the habit of not getting car sick by doing that, or I was just really lucky and wasn't car sick. So that is why I'm a, a big reader. But yeah, so reading was just my, that was my thing. Like I, uh, always did it. I mean, I was very attached to like the L.M. Montgomery books, like Anne of Green Gables, Emily of New Moon, those um, Pat of Silverbush, <laughs> all of her uh, spunky heroines. Um, the Chronicles of Narnia was very huge for me. Um, me too. Uh, and you know, I still they are problematic, but I you know they still they just have a place uh, in my heart so there you know I was definitely always a big reader and I did like write things when I was little uh, I, I I was very um, excited by like notebooks blank notebooks uh, and still have to like <laughs> restrain myself when I see a notebook because I don't use a notebook now or like very rarely but I still just like want to buy them when I see them um, so I like would write little stories and I was very dorky and I was a very good student, but then I had, a, you know, when I hit like the seventh grade, I just stopped being a good student. Um, I mean, I still was fundamentally kind of dorky and had all of my interests, but I just had a bunch of other competing interests and which were know, like, you know, boys and like wanting to like look cool. And I, I so I started, um, I went to school in Greece through the third grade and then started school in the U.S. when I was in fourth grade uh, and and was just, ho I mean, hopelessly, like, bad outfits, which you wouldn't – now it's ludicrous to me that that would even matter in, like, fourth grade, but it still does. Um, you know, I had, like, these, like, really weird, like, wide whale corduroys um, 
and turtlenecks. And my mom had very kind of strict ideas about clothing. So I wasn't allowed to wear jeans to school. And, you know, like I went to like a DC public school and like wasn't wearing jeans like that. Just, you know, I, so, you know, when I, when like puberty started to be more of a thing, I was like, no, like I refuse to like, resign myself to these wide whale corduroys like I'm going to make my own destiny but unfortunately making my own destiny didn't really involve like um addressing myself diligently to like schoolwork um so I had some sort of wilderness years um at through that point and how long did it last um till like the middle of college um but you got into college so you didn't fuck up that bad no, but I was living, I mean, I was extremely privileged. So I went to, because my dad, my dad was posted to Yerevan, Armenia, uh, when I was, uh, finishing eighth grade and the U S government will pay for you. If you have an overseas posting, um, they pay for your kid to go to boarding school. And there wasn't like an international school in Yerevan at the time. Um, or I think there was one that had just started and had like three students. So my parents weren't, um, enthusiastic about sending me there. But although they were also not enthusiastic about like sending me away, you know, across the country, across the world, but that's what ended up happening because the federal government will pay for it. Um, so I went to a boarding school. Which one? Um, it's called St. Andrews. It's in Delaware. Okay. Uh, it is famously where they filmed Dead Poet Society. Oh. Um, and I mean, so I had the benefit of just like incredible teachers and people who were who were there, you know, I was not like setting the world on fire, but there were people to be like, okay, well you have to like do this. Um, and you know, sort of dragged me like kicking and screaming to the finish line. Um, and yeah. So like, yeah, when I say wilderness years, like they're a very like mild form of wilderness, but I would say that the kind of the, um, the way that I was when I was much younger, which is when I really like learned how to be a reader, um, I kind of like abandoned that for a while and then kind of came back to it sort of in odd moments. Uh, and yeah, it was like a process that took a while. And I had no sense sort of during those years that I was going to be a writer. You know, I knew I still liked reading and writing, but I didn't think that writer was like a job that a person could have. Um, and uh to the extent that I thought about jobs at all, they were like, what can I just do that I can like make money? And so then I can like pursue my other interests, which were like, I don't know. I don't even know what those were like smoking cigarettes, um, <laughs> like, like meeting guys. I have no idea. Uh, but yeah, so I didn't start writing until like in any, uh, meaningful way until I was like 25. What, yeah. what about like other art? Like, did you have music? Was music a big fact? Cause I feel like music was so important to me when I was like 15 to 22, you know, that window yes. where I was like so invested. Yes. I knew everything. I was like, I would go to the record store back when people still did that. And, you know, just like go through the used like CDs and try to find cool things. And yes, um, I definitely had that. I think that was like all my, like my, my teen feelings, uh, really kind of landed in music as with many, uh, teenagers and young adults, uh, I think is the case. So yeah, I have vivid memories. They, my parents moved back to Greece. Um, 
yeah, they had two postings in Greece and then also spent a bunch of time in Greece, like in summers in between those. So there was just like a lot of uh, roving, but Greece was like kind of a central place that I ended up being a lot. And there was a Virgin mega store. And I used to just remember like, like obsessively uh, going through the racks of the CDs there. Um, and also like m- music happened to like intersect in a nice way with my other interest in boys <laughs> because, you know, they're like, it was such a thing like like there'd be boys who were just like so into music and like had to know everything about it um and you know music was like both a thing that I cared about a lot but then also you could be you could like like meet boys like through music um (laughs) it is a weird no but it is interesting how music like functions as kind of like a social sorting mechanism or, or like like there are whole hierarchies created around like what bands do you like and what, yeah. how, how much do you know about them and how many shows have you seen them? Like when, <laughs> when did you become a fan? Like, were you a fan before they were a thing and you know, like all this different stuff and yeah, it's, uh... it's, it's true. I mean, it's like every, it's like, um, bureaucracies, like people just can't have nice things without getting like making them into like these very like complicated sort of weird hierarchies. Um, <laughs> right. Right. The bureaucracy of like teen music fandom. <laughs> yeah. Ruin everything. So then you get into like you get into college, and and just so people know as well, you say your dad's in the foreign service. He's a diplomat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he is no longer um, for quite a while. But yes, that's what he was. So he would go to like Greece and be like in the uh, U.S. consulate or whatever, and mm-hmm. helping to like improve relations between the United States and Greece. It, yeah, like representing U.S. interests abroad, um, and that can mean a bunch of different things. But yeah. Uh, he when his last posting was in Athens, um, and he was the uh, political counselor there. So yeah, he was in the political section at the embassy. Okay, so that seemed. But I'm like kind of jealous of your childhood. This seems like exotic and interesting. And is that the way you remember it, or was it at the time kind of like well, I wish we could just live in the states and I could be? Um, I definitely at the time was the latter. I mean, I I totally like worshipped everything I mean I, I'm sorting through all these things now um, <laughs> at the ripe age of 34 uh, yes like I the sort of orientation that you have was still very much like to America um, I really like glamorized things like like ketchup and malls um, <laughs> just like all these like kind of capitalist trappings I mean what's funny to me now is that America if you go to many places in America you're like wow America's like a developing nation compared to like many places uh, in the world but uh, when I was growing up it was very like America is where like the the like nice fancy stuff is uh, and like the cool stuff um, and then also just things like you know I, I even on my sort of dorky and things like I really loved books and like they're just I, I would like when we went on home leave, you go on something called home leave every year. And that's like when you go back to the States and, you know, visit family and, uh, and I would like save, I would sort of hoard like, um, if I could find like any kind of American currency, uh, like in my parents things, I would like hoard it because I, when we went to home leave, like I would want to buy books at the bookstore, like just stuff like that. Um, so at the time, yeah, you know, moving around was difficult, but now I'm of course, like it was a gift, uh, that upbringing, um, in so many ways, uh, and was like incredibly formative. I think what I'm kind of sorting through now is just how, um, yeah, I don't know just how, how I kind of think about 
America and then how I think even the I guess the narrative that I had about that kind of upbringing was very was in was very the like kind of um college application essay because as I said you know I was kind of I was like a shitty student in high school uh but the thing that I had and I was aware even at that time there was some sort of turning point when you start to see that kind of upbringing is like currency um you're like, well, I don't have other, I don't, I don't have, you know, X, Y, and Z, but I do have this thing that like no one can take away from me. And is like, absolutely has nothing to do with like any merit of my own, but it's just how I grew up. And it's like different than uh, some other ways of growing up. So I had this idea. Um, and you know, when I, when I was like applying to college, like my essay was like, when I, you know, when I was like, my first memories are from like living in Morocco. Uh, but then, you know, as I become like an adult, like, well, A, there's nothing about that upbringing that like inherently, there's a way that you can start to think of it as like, oh, you're, you know, you're more like empathetic and like open-minded if you travel a lot. Uh, But what are the conditions under which you're traveling? Like, are you going, uh, you know, if you're, if you're going in this kind of basically what is like a, an American, like imperial project um, in some ways, like, what does that mean, I guess? Not to say that my parents were, like, you know, evil empire, um, like, neo-colonials, but uh, that's, you know, I, we weren't... You always have to look at the context in which your upbringing takes place. Let's put it that way. Sure. And, you know, you talked earlier about this, you know, the narratives around America and how it's the nice place with all the rich stuff and the, mall, yeah. the malls and the ketchup. And, you know, <laughs> these are the kinds of uh, narratives that are political leadership will often reinforce and and then you just reinforce it among friends you know in conversation you sort of like accept as at face value certain things if you hear them enough particularly if you uh don't have the privilege of traveling outside of the country mm-hmm. and you know one of the things that i feel stuck on lately i think i heard someone say it on like a podcast or a news show or something and i've found myself agreeing is that like you know America's not the richest country on earth. We just have the most billionaires or something like that, you know, and (laughs) you go to other countries and you see how they've organized themselves and how their bureaucracies work. And like, not that it's perfect, but when the, like the standard of living for the average citizen is way higher and it's obvious, Mm -hmm. uh, you start to maybe, um, doubt a little bit the solidity of your beliefs and the narratives that you've been fed. And I think that's healthy. Yeah. So, well, I, yeah, I mean, that's one, that's like, uh, there's something about, the, I think the fact that America probably had like toilets and cars before a lot of people in the rest of the world did like that, those things together just like really um, helped to uh, m- sort of enshrine this like idea of American, like, standards of living uh in a way that still remains pervasive in america and you know in other places too and people who are want to come to america from elsewhere are thinking in in many different terms and like weighing many different factors um but i mean it's 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 amazing to see how i mean i've talked to people i remember talking to someone um, who's turkish and had come to america and he went to la and he was like I was horrified I had to just leave because he couldn't, he, he couldn't believe how many people were living outside. Right. Um, right. And you know, that's like the most basic example, but now it's just like, I mean, I think about there was the, 
I'm so fucking depressed that I can't even remember the exact circumstances of which mass shooting this was because there have been so many. Um, I think it was the one in a high school and I want to say New Mexico. Um, again, it's really fucked up that I like don't have the specifics to hand, but I, one of the, um, girls who died in that was an exchange student, um, from Pakistan. And like, I'm just thinking, you know, someone who's like, oh, what a great opportunity to like have an exchange experience and like go to high school in another country where you're going to get fucking mass murdered. Like, I mean, I just, it's funny to me that we're still, politicians are still like, yeah, America, like we're the best nation in the world. It's just like by fucking what metric? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like this Thousand Oaks shooting, one of the victims or like some of the people who were there and then one of the people who died was like, a survivor of the Las yeah. Vegas massacre. And it's like, oh. like to me, that's the, that's like the, like there, there's no uh, more glaring example or piece of evidence that our country is deeply dysfunctional and like it's soul is broken than the fact that that's even possible, like mathematically, like, yeah, you know, that we have got to do something about these guns. You can't, you, when you survive, you know, you survive the, like the worst, I mean, hundreds of people died in Vegas and then you wind up getting shot a year later at another one. Like that's like, how much more evidence do we need that this is completely out of control? Yeah. It's yeah. Pretty grim. It's grim. So, uh, what about time to read? You know, we like just to circle back <laughs> to like, you know, because I'm impressed. Like you, like you're obviously a huge reader. Um, you know, I'm. I became aware of you as a fan of your uh, literary criticism. Uh, but I'm interested, just like because of my own struggles, like as a parent and as a person with a day job, like finding time to get back to books. Like, how do you find time to read amid all of your responsibilities? Um, well, I'm. One thing that is sad about not working at uh, UC Berkeley anymore is that I had a long commute and so I rode the uh, BART train every uh, day yeah. and it was only the actual BART segment is 35 minutes um, so I would do 35 minutes twice a day uh, but it's amazing how much reading I did in that period and I am a really fast reader so I could like get a lot done and it really kind of left a hole that when I didn't have that uh, and I would love to say that it's because I have kids, but honest, it's really much more that I have a phone. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of right now I'm trying to write a book where I need to read a lot of stuff in order to do that. Um, and part of it is that the books, I mean, I, I have too many sort of jobs that I'm trying to do at once and I, I need to, I need to sort out my life in some pretty serious ways in terms of like what I'm doing during the day. So I'm in like a you're, period you're like, of, you're, uh, you're like a, you're like your own individual bureaucracy. <laughs> yes, I really, I really am. And I'm like underfunded right now as a bureaucracy. So I'm, I'm trying to, I'm like doing some reorganizing. I have not paid a consultant to do it for me, uh, as of this point, but, um, so I need to like sort of build in like reading time during the day. I'm still kind of operating the way that I used to, which is like, the reading time will just sort of materialize like at other parts of the day, but it's clearly not like, um, you know, after the kids go to bed, when you have that, like, ugh, I just like can lie on the couch and do whatever, like the whatever is like, I'm looking at my phone and like scrolling through shit. Um, not deep reading. My husband and I have a fundamental, uh, difference between us, which we're slowly like working toward some kind of resolution. But, 
Um, he didn't grow up reading before he went to bed. Uh, so he like my, I spent my life, you know, getting into a bed, you like read your book until you fall asleep. Like that's just how I would go to sleep. Um, and when my husband and I started dating, it like, it was just crushing to me because he'd be like, I hear pages turning. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta and, get a Kindle, you know? Man. And, uh, <laughs> it's just like, this is so like uncivilized. How do you, how can you just like get into a bed and like turn the light off? No, but no, you... <laughs> this is, I, I need, you're singing my, you're singing my song because my <laughs> wife likes to like turn the lights out and just like shut down. And, no. I, and I'm like, no, I need a bed. And, she, and if I turn the, like my, my side of the bed, not her side of the bed, but I have a little light on my side of the bed. If I turn that on, she's like, I can't sleep. Yep. And I'm wow. like, well, I don't know what to do about this. Like we're at an impasse. I got to get like a headlamp and like go into the covers. Like I'm seven years old or something. <laughs> yeah. My, my, my husband would be like, well, you could go in another room. And I'm like, that's not the same that like I could read in another room anytime. <laughs> like this is my bedtime thing. Um, so I slowly stopped, you know, I lost the habit, but then actually we, he, somehow we, we've been married, uh, six years, um, and have been together for like 11 years. Uh, some now sometimes we read in bed um, and both of us do. And that is really great. So I want to keep, you know, really keep up that like hard work that we, <laughs> we are doing together. Um, but basically I don't like, I don't read enough now. I feel like I know the titles since I started editing the millions. I know the titles of more books than I ever, ever, ever imagined knowing. Um, and I have huge piles of books in my house. Many of them like arrive unsolicited um, and just, make a huge sort of mess in my home and I like stare at them and just feel bad because I want to read them, but I know I never will. And, um, so I guess the answer is like, I'm, when I read now, it's because I like, there's a reason that I have to read this book. So now I just need to like sit down and do it. Um, but the reading for pleasure, just kind of picking something up because it's there or like, I'm a huge rereader historically and there are books that I like read every year, basically. Like um, what, which books? Um, so of human bondage, I've read a bunch of times. Um, I really love that book. I've read a suitable boy a bunch of times. Um, that one's really long. So I probably do that like every second or third year. Um, uh, I read the Berlin stories. I've read that one a lot. Um, I don't know. They're just these kind of ones that like, if I haven't read them in a while, I'll be like, oh, it's time to read that. Uh, I Claudius. I love I Claudius. Uh, but I, I'm not even really doing that now. And so, and I feel like that's, that's very kind of destabilizing. Um, so I need to get like my reading practice back. Me somehow. too. Me too. I'm a better person when I'm reading. I'm, I don't know if I'm a better person, but I'm like a happier person. Well, that's the same thing. And like, but, <laughs> but also <laughs> like, also like just like a more interesting person. Like I, yes. I, I feel like I've got a much, my, my mind is much more live when it's been mm -hmm. fed properly. And then I think too, like it just reading, especially a paper book, uh, just enforces a certain slowness and concentration that is very good for me. Yes, Absolutely but I got to figure out when to do it. So I'm always asking people how they get it done. And then, uh, what about like the new book and then your, your like writing ritual? Cause you, you talked you just said briefly about, you know, your job editing the millions. Mm -hmm. so, so for people listening, like the, the millions is a, you know, long running literary mag online. Mm -hmm. Uh, yes. So I am, have been basically how I was able to write this book is that I, uh, knew I wanted to 
basically the writing that I had done previously, I had always done like nights and weekends uh, or early mornings, nights and weekends. Uh, and that was before I had a kid. So I would like either be working full time or I was in grad school and working. And then the writing was just like, I would like stuff it in somewhere and I could do that. Once I had uh, my daughter, I just like completely lost the ability to do that. I think some people are able to. I just couldn't. I was like overloaded with things. Uh, and I stopped. And so, but that corresponded with like, I had started to get some sort of better bylines, was actually starting to be able to like make a little bit of money from writing and had had, you know, would like get emails sometimes from agents like, I like your voice. Like, are you working on a book? And so it started the very time that I stopped basically being able to write was the time that my writing seemed more feasible, like as a, as a, an enterprise. Um, and so I knew I talked with my husband a lot and, you know, we needed money. Um, but I was also knew that I like really wanted to write and that I was, you know, life is short. Um, and there's no time like the present. So right. uh, I, but I happened to, I actually, I think I wrote about it in my year in reading, which is this like annual series we do at the millions where people talk about things that they read over the year. And uh, I, I did, that, I, well, I did that once. Yes. Um, I was going to ask, I feel like you probably did. Uh, it's been running now for like 14 years and I've had many like wonderful writers and readers on there. Um, and I happen, and mine's always like just basically sort of a feelings diary. And I, mentioned in it that I had wanted to like quit my job and Max it turned out uh, who is the founder of the millions he wanted to quit his job which was doing the millions but it actually wasn't his job so the what is amazing about the millions is that Max made it into what it is while working full-time in something completely unrelated um, and raising three small children uh, with his wife Lauren so the millions has always just been like a thing that he, that's his nights and weekends thing. Um, and he, after doing it for over 10 years was just really burned out. And then he found out that I was kind of looking for a change. And he was like, why don't, you know, I can pay you this stipend per month. Uh, which basically I, I sort of calculated that if I like did work two hours a day, it'd be 25 bucks an hour, which seems like, you know, before taxes, which seemed like that was fair and reasonable. And it would almost cover the child's daycare. Um, and I was lucky that my husband, uh, had good health insurance and he could like cover our rent. So my husband and I agreed that we could do this for a year, uh, and I could try and write the book. So that was great. And that is how I was able to write the book. But I also got pregnant and had another kid, uh, <laughs> after that year. So then the money part just now it makes it, the money just doesn't, it doesn't work. Um, and even, you know, though I was, I was like very lucky to sell my book, like that the way you get paid for a book mm. is like over a period of years and like, you know, heavily taxed and like, it just doesn't, it, it's sort of like you have a, an okay paying job for like a couple of years. Um, it's how it like works out and, but with two kids with the daycare anyway. So there's like all these like economics right now that are, are not really working out, um, so I'm kind of, yeah, I'm like figuring out what to do about that. And I am trying to write another book. Um, but I'm also trying to do like sort of some like freelance, like copy editing type of stuff. And you got to find it. You got to find a new bureaucracy to join. You got to like, you know, insert yourself into a, uh, a human catastrophe. <laughs> yeah, actually, you know, it's funny. Well, and I think too, like I, I like to apparently do jobs for like, uh, no more than three years at a time and then like lose my shit 
abandon the job, like write a book about it. So maybe I could just like keep doing that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the, they're all, I, none of these, I'm, I hope I don't sound like too complainy. Like these are like good problems to have, but um, yeah, I don't know. Well, I think it's related. I think it's relatable. I think most people, <laughs> most people who are trying to raise a family and write literary fiction or literary nonfiction have to run this gauntlet like at some point, if not like the whole time, you know? Yeah. And, uh, what, what, what about the new book? Is there, are there any hints you can offer? I mean, you sort of spoke a little bit to it, I think earlier, but, um, so it's about, uh, a family, the foreign service family, um, in a former Soviet Republic. Um, and it's about them and sort of the various, uh, people from other countries who gather um in so it takes place in azerbaijan and so far i mean this is it's very new i don't know how um you know maybe maybe it's not going to go all the way i don't I, I don't know but um that's where it takes place and yeah it's about like uh in the period of time after the dissolution of the soviet union and at the start of the kind of not the first because there have been many many influxes of um foreign people interested in the oil um, reserves in what is now Azerbaijan, but the sort of more recent uh, iteration of that in the 90s. So I'm trying to like read and learn about that period of time. Why, why do you like to write fiction? I'm not sure. Um, I think it's because, I mean, I like writing and I was writing other things and then I started having, I don't know, they're just, they're things that I'm, like to think about and get on paper and work through. Um, I mean, some of it really do, I think is like what I do instead of when I should like be paying a therapist. Uh, <laughs> I can relate to that. I mean, I think, I think a lot of people can, um, it just, it helps me kind of, it helps me like sort through things and, and, uh, and visit places and frames of mind that I, want to go back to for whatever reason. Um, and, and it lets you do that in a way that other kinds of writing don't, or I, or I have, I haven't found a way to make them do it. So all the, the, the kind of writing that I, um, I mean, when I started, when I started writing, I was writing about books because that's kind of, was like, I know I, I read books and I know how to write an English paper. And so this is just a vehicle that I can use to like figure out what my, how to write. Um, and, but the, what I, what I think people, the people who do, who did enjoy my writing and some people obviously don't, and that's fine. Um, but they responded to, it wasn't like they were like, wow, she's just like, has so many like great observations about books. Like they might've liked what I said about books, but it, I always got the sense that it was more sort of the way that I said it. And, um, and I did like write about like personal things and, um, that's what I liked. And I, you know, yeah, that, I, I, I'm interested in, uh, I'm interested in the fact that you, you know, began by writing about books and writing criticism and, and then took a stab at a novel and like how that has affected your approach to criticism or your desire to continue writing in that vein. Like once you've put a book out and, you know, seen it be subjected to the critics <laughs> and everything else, you know, it's gotta be an interesting process. Yes. I mean, I definitely felt like I was, um, cheating, sort of at first, like how dare I have the nerve to ever have, you know, weighed in on anybody's book and then 
think that I could write my own book. I mean, one of the things is when I started when I started writing, I was writing only about books that where the author was like usually long dead. Like they were all I started writing about the like hundred best books of these you know century as put forth by the modern library, just because it was like you know it was like here's a project that's kind of built in, and I'll just like read these um, and talk about them. And they also it fit with my to the extent that I had any like training, it was in these incredible incredible English classes in my like hothouse boarding school environment um where you know the teachers all went to like the Breadloaf school of English and like knew everything about Henry James and you know just like a huge sort of gift to be able to um be in classes like that as a high school student and so that was like what kind of sort of training I had and so that was what I felt possible so I was like oh, okay I'll just like read old books and talk about them because I sort of have the skill set but I can make it more fun and this was the time that blogs were taking off and or had taken off and you know I used to read like Gawker and Jezebel and Wonkette um back when Wonkette was very different than it is now and and I was I found you know I liked the sort of like fun bloggy snarky voice and so I was like what if I talked about old books but also use that voice um and you know to some some, some of the results were better than others, but, um, that's, you know, what I started doing. And so I didn't, I wasn't thinking of myself as like a book critic, but because I started doing this and was like writing for a book site, people started sending me new books and asking me to review them. And I'm in, I'm very grateful that that happened because that's, you know, that was like a path to being a writer for me, but it's also like, I didn't, I didn't, you know, show up somewhere and like knock on the door and be like, hello, I'd like to be a book critic now. Well, so, um, okay. This is like ultra fascinating to me because it, it, it <laughs> explains your appeal to me. Like the reason I think you resonated with me as a critic is because I was reading those sites too. And I didn't, I, I guess I didn't like pick up on it in an explicit way, but I obviously was picking up on it implicitly and like responding to it. So it, it, like Lydia Kiesling, all, you know, you're, it all makes sense to me now. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I'm glad that I was able to put that out there, but, um, yeah, so then I, but then I started like, you know, to get money, like to be paid, like it was to be paid for writing book reviews. Um, but you know, I think there's something about the standalone book review. I'm not, I'm not super interested in like, first of all, you know, the, both the, the economics of it and then just the like practice of it. I don't, that's not what I would like love to do going forward. Um, but I am happy that I had the chance to do it because I think it sort of, you know, every, everything like every, you use everything like in some way. And so that was like very important for my kind of development as a reader and writer. But yeah, I, I would love to, I mean, I think I just kind of love to be able to like write books. And then if I do read like a group of books or, um, you know, have some kind of idea about, something that's happening in, in fiction or culture and like was able to, uh, write that, you know, for a publication that would like pay me lots of money, you know, like, yes, that's great. But I think this sort of like, let me look at a list of books and see what's coming out and be like, can I please review this, you know, in six months? Like I, I, there's that, that can be like very kind of grinding and I don't, um, I would love to not do that. Well, um, I, I think that, uh, I think it would be a healthy, uh, like it would, it would make the whole ecosystem healthier if every critic like was forced to write a book and publish it like a novel or you know that which they criticize they should be forced to write and subject themselves to the to the other side of the spectrum 
And then likewise, like every novelist who's never written criticism, it seems like it might be a good idea to try that. Uh, it's like, it seems like a good education. Well, when, I mean, one thing I, when I was starting to feel, when I was feeling just so guilty, like that I was, I mean, I, I'm just thinking of specific books that I've been like, oh, well, you know, I've been kind of like sliding. I, I, I'm, do not write like a lot of like hatchet jobs, but you know, sometimes I would be like less than enthusiastic about some like aspect of a book. And then when I was writing my book, I was like, fuck, I'm doing like exactly the same thing. This is so hard. I'm such a hack that I ever, and like, why did I ever, or hack, that's not, not even using the word correctly, but like why, you know, why did I think that I could talk about this? But then I realized like I was reading one of my favorite, um, sets of books. And another thing that I read a lot is the, um, dance to the music of time series by Anthony Pohl. And I like, we'll pick up kind of individual volumes of it now and again and read them. Um, and when you read that, I mean, that's obviously like talking about a very, very specific period of time. Um, just, you know, mid century England, um, world war two. Uh, and, but you read like about these, his, his like milieus, like readers and writers. Um, and it was like a very small group. They all knew each other. They all like shat on each other. Um, but they also like the right, the writers were also the critics. Like there wasn't anybody who was just sort of like doing one and not the other for the most part. Um, so you, it helped me realize that like the world of letters, um, that sounds very pretentious, but like such as it is, it's always in every kind of epoch been like a pretty small community. Um, and with just a huge amount of like fluidity, like there's no bright line basically between, like if you are a critic like that, you could never try any sort of piece of like original writing um, of your own. Like it was often, and I mean, if you look at like the New York Times book review, like the people that are reviewing the books are all writers themselves. Uh, so I think that's kind of a tradition of longstanding. So it helped me to feel less like I was being an asshole by um, thinking that I could like cross the line because um, yeah. there's no line. No, and, and you know, I think like, like a few thoughts on criticism, like just as not as a critic or anybody who's ever attempted that himself, but as a reader of it and someone who is often frustrated by criticism is the format like the, this is a good book and I like this book. And then in the, like the back third of the, of the review is like, however, the book actually <laughs> sucks. And like, here's what, you know, it's like, it's like every review <laughs> follows this format. So I'm like always hungry for a critic who will blow that format up a little bit. And then the other thing I always love from a critic, and this is something you do, is a critic who has skin in the game and like writes about themselves inside of the criticism. And like a, a maybe interesting parallel to this is uh, I think about the appeal of uh, Cheryl Strayed's Dear Sugar and how she blew mm -hmm. she blew up the advice format by instead of acting like the oracle, uh, like the you know the anonymous oracle who's like dishing out advice and like judging people's experiences and feelings she's like oh and by the way you know x y and z happened to me in my life and i've struggled here and like she, she had skin in the game yeah and so like th if you do that then i think like the hard news or the snarkiness or the strong feelings that might not necessarily be positive become much more palatable to me as a reader uh it's like it's like oh okay now i feel like there's some ground under my feet or something and if in the absence of that I'm less trusting and it also just feels, um, I don't know, less human feels meaner, you know? Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, there is something about sort of revealing and of course there's can be like, there's obviously like a lot of kind of performative elements to, to revealing your like subjectivity or, you know, showing that like 
kind of human side. Like, of course, like that's not that that's its own. There's an artifice that exists there also. Um, but I do think that it helps to, I mean, one thing that's been interesting about the last few years is for me is seeing like the kind of decline of like authority or, um, both in ways that are good and ways that are really disappointing. Like you just see these publications or workplaces that you admired so much. And then you find out that they are run by people. And sometimes the people are not great and things like that are (laughs) happening. Um, uh, but also just, I mean, there, there are so many kind of barriers that have existed, um, to certain kinds of like writing and publication. Um, and, and part of that is predicated on this sense, like of, of authority, which you realize is often completely manufactured when people are like writing a book review. It's like, they only sound like that because they think that's how you're supposed to sound when you're talking about a book and that you have to kind of demonstrate somehow that you are qualified uh, to weigh in. And so there are all these kind of turns of phrase that you find yourself adopting uh, just because that is like what the critical vocabulary is. And so I think it is, there's something nice about when people can put themselves into it. It helps, as you said, like makes those things more palatable because it helps you see that there is just like a person with their own set of kind of biases and weirdnesses and like personal histories that influence whatever reading they have. Um, and that's not to say that nobody can like render a judgment about a book, but just like let's all show that the judgment that's being rendered is informed by a very kind of particular and like personal set of things. Um, yes. Well said. Yeah. Like, I, like, I like, cause like, I just want to add too. like, I actually love strong opinions from a critic, mm-hmm. you know, like I want them if they don't like it, I want to know. And like, yeah. I, you know, and if it's really just like not working and there's like maybe even some bite, you know, to the review and some snark, like I, I got to say, as a reader, you sort of love that too. You like to know when you're getting the straight shit from somebody, good or bad, but, um, you know. Well, it's it's fun. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it makes it more, if when somebody, I mean, the problem is when the thing is just so mean or it's like fucked up or problematic in like some other set of ways, like, you know, there are ways where, when it can be not great. Uh, but when you see how the, the kind of like, you know, book internet responds when someone like, you know, finally just like drop something that is uh you know like a like a takedown of some kind i mean there's again sometimes they're just mean and like shouldn't be written but you can tell how starved everyone is for just like yeah that kind of meaty even uh something like opinionated because i mean honestly the the book review format typically does not encourage that like kind of writing and and sometimes it shouldn't like there's no reason to just there's no reason to like try and exist in that mode for every kind of piece of criticism you're going to write because sometimes it's just like the book is fine like there's someone commissioned a review uh you don't really have something to say one way or the other like you're just going to write something <laughs> it's um, fine it's fine Sign. yeah Lydia and, and there, well there's no reason to just like create drama there by trying to like be an asshole but you can people love reading i mean it makes it it makes it exciting when there is like when someone writes something that that has, you know, a point of view that is clear, well, I guess. And I should say too, like I've read uh, reviews of yours that weren't necessarily glowing, uh, <laughs> but the 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 rigor, you know, like the intellectual rigor and the the skin in the game aspect, and um, just I don't know, just like the depth of the read that you have given it, even though you don't love it, it doesn't necessarily turn me off to it. And in a lot of senses, it makes me curious about it. 
you know? Yeah, so I think, I, that, I, think some, I think sometimes people overestimate how detrimental a review like that is. I think sometimes it's actually like good for the book. I mean, honestly, the one like true, um, like hatchet job, I guess that I've ever written, which I have like very sort of mixed feelings about now, but whatever, it's about the book, uh, Taipei by Talon. And I, and I mean, like, as soon as I wrote it, I instantly felt I had all kinds of like, just feelings like, why did I do this? Well, but whenever, and whenever I think about it now and I'm like, and still feel kind of conflicted, I remember that uh, that was the num like it was the t- the millions keeps its sort of like bestseller list and I you know it's it's not like the New York Times bestseller but it's just based on the kind of back end stuff you can see um, what books people are buying from the site um, through uh, the very unfortunate fact that we do link to Amazon um, for that's a whole nother episode uh, but uh, for like the Amazon affiliate. Yeah, the Amazon affiliate program, the millions has used that for a really long time. And again, you should get Max McGee on here and he can talk about that. But uh, (laughs) so I, but like Taipei sold tons of books that way through the millions specific, like people clicked from that review. Um, And I think you're right. Like there's a certain way that you can talk about a book that even if it's negative, just makes people interested in the book. And that is not bad. No, it's, and there's a, I don't even know. It's like, it's complicated, but I think there's like a certain feeling. Cause I read that review and had, you know, had a similar interest and I wound up reading Taipei and it's like, uh, I don't know you're an honest broker, even if it was like a, not a necessarily glowing review. Um, you definitely gave the book a fair shake, you know, uh, you spent real time thinking about it. It wasn't just like an off the cuff, like a takedown, you know, and I think people can feel the difference. Well, and I don't think, I mean, my, my, my bias is like very front and center in that book. So I think, you know, what I can say to myself when I'm, you know, feeling like weird about it is like, I didn't, you know, there, there are kind, there are reviews. I mean, that book actually was very like critically well received um, and people seem to love it. And that made me feel dumb um, (laughs) in some ways, but like, you know, there's a way that a bad review can be written in a in, you know, like the New York times, it's just, that's that, that where again, like there's that the veil of like authority is there and there is no sort of personal thing brought into it. And so it, you know, you can look at whoever the critic is and it's like, you know, professor so-and-so and they're just being like, this book is bad, but I don't, yeah, my, that is not the way that I was um, expressing my opinion about that book. It was very clearly like my my opinion. It's a great. I think it's a great. I was not like retweets do not equal endorsements. I don't don't know. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So yeah. Well, I have. uh, I'm very happy for you to see you having publication success with your novel. And I like I've told you many times. I've been a fan going back to your. your early criticism and I'm going to be very interested to see uh, how your career develops, you know, with this next book and beyond and, and just really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Um, well, likewise, I'm the feeling is mutual. I'm a big fan and I'm so grateful to you. Thank you. All right, there you go. That's Lydia Kiesling. Her debut novel is called the golden state. It's out there now from MCD books. Go get your copy the golden state if you would like to find lydia online lydiakiesling.com is the web address and if you want to tweet with her her twitter handle is at lydiakiesling 
Thank you, as always, to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. If you want to support the show, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget about the Other People app. This show has a free app. It's free. It's the free official app of this podcast. It's a great way to listen. Go get it wherever you get your apps. It's free. The Other People app. Okay. So, uh, what? Big week. Lots going on. Always. I'm recording this on the weekend. You can hear the fatigue in my voice. Can you not? I conducted two interviews this morning. Now I'm recording the show. Trying to cram it all in. That's what life's all about these days. You've got to cram it all in. The holidays are coming up. There's wildfires, there's political unrest, we're living through times I never quite thought I would ever live through. That's okay, that happens, we're human beings. The earth is turning, things have happened on this planet for a long time, involving people. Hey Trump! <laughs>